What's up, you guys? I'm Anya. And I'm Kylie. And this is Two Degrees Hotter, the postgrad podcast where we get real about life after college every Tuesday. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of Two Degrees Hotter. Yes. Happy Tuesday, everyone. This is the slumber party edition of Two Degrees Hotter. Uh, Not really, but kind of, because we are recording pretty late at night. It's around 8.30 here, which people are going to be like, 8.30 is not late at all, you literal grandmothers. (laughs) On a work night? That's kind of late. Yeah. To start at 8.30. Yeah. But it's all good because we are recording this late to have a very special and fun guest on our show. So we're having Shagun Sethi on the show. She's a listener of the Two Degrees Hotter podcast, which is so, so, so exciting. But she's also a really, really cool woman doing really, really cool work. Uh, She's currently at Columbia University, killing it. And she is going to chat with us about general safety for women across the world in urban areas um, and why it's important to take steps to make cities safer for all of us, all of us women, and why and how we need women leadership as a solution to helping women feel safe, not only just in the world, but specifically in urban areas. So she has a lot more expertise on this than we necessarily do, but we think it's a wicked important topic to talk about, especially as women ourselves moving. Well, Anya's already in the city. I'm moving to the city. So yeah. And she is based in India, if we haven't yes. mentioned that. Oh, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll have to ask her when she joins, but I think 8.30 our time is like 5.30 her time. So Yeah. Yeah. So um, she's joining us at like 6 a.m. <laughs> yes. So she's definitely doing us a service and we were so happy that she reached out and definitely want to encourage any of you guys listening to reach out if you feel like you have a cool episode idea. We would absolutely love to hear from you. It was really cool mm-hmm. to meet a listener via Zoom and feel like, you know, there are actually people out there listening to us. So yeah. Yeah, definitely hit us up if you have a topic that you'd like to bring to the show. We'd love to hear it. Yeah, for sure. Well, before we are joined by Shagun, let's start off with our segments. Also, sorry if my sorry if it sounds like I'm losing my voice. I don't feel like I'm losing my voice, but I had a couple people during work comment on it today, so I feel fine, but maybe I'm just like talking too much these days. <laughs> but for my week in review, I just wanted to talk about Um, A couple things, the first one being that I got a gym membership for the first time in like God knows how long because of COVID, obviously. And then when I was in school, I pretty much always just used like the school gym because it was way better than anything I would be able to afford. Um, So I haven't had a gym membership since probably like 2016 or 2017 in the summer when I was home. Um, And so I feel like weirdly, I don't know if this is just like a mindset thing because obviously like you pay for the gym when you're at school. You just don't really feel the pain because it's like included in all the other insane expenses that you have. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, because like I'm having this like charge on my credit card every month, I'm hoping that it will motivate me to go because Mm -hmm. I'm like feeling the pain. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'm excited about it. I went on Saturday, which was cool and checked it out. And it's it's a YMCA, just happens to be the closest gym to us. It's like a 12 minute walk maybe mm-hmm. um and they have a pool and you know like a studio and they have like outdoor spin right now so I definitely want to sign up for some classes but yeah I'm hoping that you know one of my goals was to like really focus on fitness this year and I feel like that hasn't really happened I've really only picked up like daily walks but apart from that I feel like I haven't made a lot of progress so hopefully with this newfound gym membership and you know feeling financially obligated to actually use it, I will, you know, work out a little more, be a little healthier. That's the goal. Love um, it. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up was this past weekend, I just feel like I've been kind of like reuniting with friends. I've been back in Boston. Mm-hmm. And this past weekend, we were actually out like in the neighborhood that Kylie is moving to in a couple months. And it was like so lively. Like it was mm-hmm. crazy. Like it looked exactly like I would have pictured pre-pandemic. And it was just so cool to see like everyone was out on these like swings and it was just like bumping like, I don't know. It was cool. Um, And I feel like I everything just changed like so fast around here. 
And I feel like really privileged that we can be in that position because I know there's still so many places around the world that are struggling so much and are so behind in like the vaccine process and everything. But it just felt so normal. And Mm -hmm. I was like, wow. Like I literally feel like a switch like just flipped. Like April to now is like a totally different universe, it feels like. So that was very cool. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. It literally feels like a different – like I feel like I'm in a new lifetime. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Um, so for my weekend review, Anya's going to yell at me for this because she's going to be like, you need to stop (laughs) stressing about this stuff. But I just still have a lot of anxiety about things not working out. And I think I've been having a lot of feelings of like, not thinking that I made a mistake taking a leave from law school because I do not think that I made a mistake taking a leave. I just like keep having these feelings of like, it's too late. Like, I was too far down the rabbit hole, so to speak, to like be making this change. And I think part of that just like stems from the fact that I like spent all of undergrad just thinking I was going to law school. And like in hindsight, I'm now like I would have spent undergrad doing like so many different things if I knew that I was going to end up here in the long run, if that makes sense. That I'm like, like I just feel like I'm starting from scratch with everything and like applying to jobs. And all of that just, like, is very anxiety-inducing. And, like, it literally is for everyone because if you're applying for jobs, it's because you need a job. (laughs) And so, like, you need it to work out. And, like, I just haven't really let the possibility of it not working out seep into my mind. Like, I just keep telling myself that it's going to work out because it needs to work out. But I'm like, what if it doesn't work out? Like, then what? Like, what do you do if it doesn't work out? I don't know. It sounds ridiculous. I know I sound ridiculous. And that, like, it's so soon in my process that like I don't need to be having these feelings, but like I'd rather have these feelings now and work my butt off to make it work out than be like so far down in this process being like, oh my God, I really don't think this is going to work out. I don't know. I sound like a crazy person. I know I do. <laughs> I, I don't want you to feel like I'm invalidating your feelings because I definitely felt the same way like when I was in my job search, but I just want to remind everyone listening, it is like literally week three of Kylie's job search. <laughs> So I get where you're at, but I just want to say you have so much time and you have such a cushion with the situation that you're in right now that I I feel like you just don't have to worry. Like, obviously, yes, you need a job, but I feel like you're in a position that like they're willing to keep you on as long as you need. So like, it's way better to wait for the right opportunity to come along rather than like rushing into something because you have to because you don't. Yeah. So I feel like it's like really fine, <laughs> but I know that's like no, not a helpful perspective because I'm in a very different position, but I have been in your position and it turns out yeah. fine and it always does. Sometimes it just takes a little longer, but it's usually worth it in the end. No, so I know. keep grinding. <laughs> I know. I think it, and I don't think you're invalidating my feelings at all. And like, I do need to keep hearing this. I'm just the type of person that like needs to keep hearing stuff like that. And then eventually it penetrates my skull and I'm like, oh my God, you're right. But it just takes a few times. Um, I think for me though, there's just like a lot of things. There's a lot of anxiety on the fact that like it feels like a lot's riding on this. Because I'm like, well, if I drop out of law school, like I need to be able to show something for it. Like I don't want to drop out of law school and then work at McDonald's because then people are going to be like, what the hell are you doing? Like you were a 3.9 GPA law student and you dropped out to work at McDonald's. And I'm not like knocking anyone who works at McDonald's. Like live your (laughs) dream, do what you got to do. But, like, that's just personally not what I want out of a career. And I want to be able to, like, look back and be like, yeah, no, I dropped out of law school, but I ended up in, like, a really great situation. And I'm just like, what if that doesn't happen? Like, what if that doesn't happen? And it might not right away. And that's, like, normal and fine. Most people don't stay in their first, like, post-grad role much longer than, like, a year or two because not every role is, like, perfect for you. But the only way to figure it out is to do the damn thing and you figure it out. Like, I don't know. It'll be fine. It's just the interim. That's scary. But you said like there would have been things you did differently in undergrad. Like what? What would you have done differently? Well, I just think that like all of my like networking and like preparation almost that I spent in undergrad was towards law school. Like if I was meeting with someone, it was because I was going to law school and I wanted to like pick their brain about law school I even the position that I'm in right now I got because I wanted to go to law school and a fair amount of the people who work at this company have JDs and they do a lot of like contract work so that's how I like got my foot in the door here 
was because of law school. And like in this case, like that worked out pretty well. And like I wouldn't have changed that aspect of undergrad. But I'm like, what like other internships would I have tried to go after? Who would I try to like have connected with? And like would I like what other academic programs would I ex- have explored? How would I have utilized like the career resources at my undergraduate institution to try to find a job? after post-grad like stuff like that I'm like I wish I didn't tunnel vision on law school and I wish I like also just like had a backup plan of like well if I wasn't gonna go to law school let me like have this avenue set up I don't know if that I mean at the end of the day like it is what it is I can't go back and change that so I shouldn't spend time dwelling on it now but I mean I think it's good (sighs) advice for people listening though like start if you're still in school, like start thinking about your backup and like make sure that you've done the work there too, just to like save yourself potential trouble yeah. down the line. But I will say, I feel like for career services, at least at Northeastern, like you can benefit from those at any point, even after you've graduated. So I would say check if that's the same with Assumption, because I feel like that's most schools, like you still have access to like the career center and like the like mentorship and resources and stuff, even yeah. though you're like not a current student. I want to say that with Assumption, it was like a like you have access to them up to a year after you graduate. I could be like totally making that up and I should double check it. But yeah. I want to say that that was like their rule, which like, again, kind of sucks because I'm like, how many people actually have their lives figured out a year after they graduate where they feel like they need no support whatsoever? Yeah, from- I would definitely double check because Northeastern, yeah. I'm literally pretty sure it's like for life. Like you could return when you're like 55 <laughs> and it would still help. <laughs> so just... I would double check because I feel like that's yeah. not typical, but I feel like everything you did like still taught you a lot and you yeah. wouldn't have ended up here like if you had taken a different route. So yeah, I know it's like, I know. it's like an annoying thing to say, but like <laughs> everything happens for a reason. It'll work out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I just, I think part of me also hopes that by like airing all of like the negative feelings and the anxiety that I have, like I'm just really hopeful that like two, three, four months from now, Kylie, we'll look back and be like, oh my God, June, Kylie, yeah. like, what were you so worried about? Like, everything's fine. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I'm almost like, I'm just trying to like, let the anxiety like happen and be like, okay, like I recognize that things could go bad. So I'm doing everything that I can so that they don't go bad. So like, hey, universe, throw me a bone. Like, I'm doing my part. You do your yeah. part and help me out here. <laughs> no, I'm kind of the same way. Like, I'd rather just make my fear is very clear rather than like stuff them down kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, but like you, you're saying like things going really bad. Like, like what does that even mean? Like it takes longer than you expected. Like, okay, that'll be fine. You have a cushion right now. You end up in a place that's not a perfect fit. Okay. You stay for like a year and then you move somewhere else. Like, I just feel like nothing is actually, there's no situation yeah. where things like actually just go bad. <laughs> Well, your girl likes to catastrophize (laughs) and assume that, like, at some point I'm going to have no full-time job and the cushion that I have will be gone. And I'll just be, like, on unemployment. It's very unlikely. And even if you are on unemployment, it's pretty good money at this point. So (laughs) it'll be fine. (laughs) You're right. You're right. Anywho, I will stop badgering everyone with my anxiety. It's just... I honestly, to, this wasn't even necessarily a week thing. It was a today thing. And mm-hmm. anyone who has anxiety knows that like it just comes and goes in ways. And some days you're just like really anxious and can't really get whatever you're anxious about, even if it's nothing at all off your mind. So that was me today. So I was like, whatever, I'm going to vent to the podcast about the anxiety that I'm having today. And I'm probably going to wake up tomorrow feeling fine. So it is what it is. Yeah, I get that. Well, let's move into our favorites. So my favorite this week is a cleansing balm. It is the Vanillaco Clean It, Clean It Zero is the name. And then it's a three-in-one cleansing balm. And this is the first balm I've literally ever tried. So I'm not out here being like, this is the most elite balm ever. But I just feel like I'm enjoying the transition to using this as opposed to the micellar water that I've been doing. And I still like micellar water. Like I'll use it for like heavier makeup, like if I'm wearing something waterproof or something like that, obviously. But I just really like the the double cleansing process with a balm. Like mm-hmm. I feel like it's very gentle and I'm definitely not like tugging on my skin or anything like that. And I just feel like in the summer, it's kind of nice to like 
feel so glowy like that. Like I feel like a balm mm-hmm. just kind of helps you feel really glowy. So I got it at Ulta. It looks like it's $19. Um, and they have a bunch of like varieties. I just got the original, which is in the clean, the um, pink packaging. But then they also have a clarifying one and a nourishing one and a purifying one and a revitalizing one. So I don't know how much those different properties actually matter, but I just got the original and I'm really liking it. So would recommend if you're on the fence about switching to a cleansing balm as opposed to whatever makeup removal you're doing right now, I recommend. Yeah. I love a balm. I'm a micellar water girl myself, but I have dabbled in the balms and nothing but good things to say. Yeah. Um, For my favorite, I'm very excited about this favorite. I want to shout it from the rooftops. So my fellow curvy girls will know. For those of you who don't know what I look like, if you haven't like seen us on Instagram, I consider myself, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on you, I consider myself a pear-shaped person. I think I'm mm. pretty small up top, but your girl's got hips. Your girl's got thighs. It is what it is. And so anyone who's like me, who's more like pear-shaped or even hourglass-shaped, knows that jeans, <laughs> impossible. Impossible to find ones that fit, especially rigid denim. I, up until this favorite, did not own a single pair of rigid denim. All of my jeans had stretched to them because it was the only way that I could get them to get up and over my legs and not be ginormous on my waist. But I decided to be brave and I ordered a pair of wide leg jeans from H&M. And I was hoping, okay, they're wide leg, so they should like naturally be baggy so I can, you know, get them up and over my legs and they still fit in my waist. So I ordered them. And I will say, I normally take um, a six or an eight in jeans and I ordered these in a 10. I would not have get, like, I didn't want to return them for an eight. I definitely should have gotten the 10 for the sake of getting them up over my thighs. They are a little big in my waist, but nothing crazy. I mean, I've just accepted the fact that all of my jeans have like that gaping in the back. It is what it is. So it has that little gaping in the back, but they're definitely like wearable. In the past, I had tried on rigid denim and I kid you not, I would have to get to like a 14 (laughs) in order to get them to get up and over my legs. And then they would be huge on my waist. Like you could have fit in the jeans with me (laughs) where they were in my waist. Um, So I'm very pleased that these are like as good of a fit as I think I'm ever going to find with rigid denim. And I really like the cut. I think the wide leg jeans and like the way they're high-waisted make my legs look really long, which I like because I also have very short legs. So yeah, my curvy girls, if you've been looking for rigid denim, looking for wide leg jeans, highly recommend. Recommend sizing up, but they're not going to be like ridiculous because I just feel like my girls with hips know that like you literally have to get a size freaking 14 to get them to go over your thighs and then you're just like left with room for like a party of six in the waist so like oh, it's such a struggle but I'm here to tell you that these ones are worth it and they're only like $35 so get yourself a pair. Yeah when you said this to me I recommended the same thing. I haven't tried these jeans that you're talking about but I know that Everlane has a specific Mm -hmm. line of jean for people with this problem and so they call them the curvy XYZ like every I think pretty much every denim they make has like a curvy um, option Mm -hmm. and I guess when I first saw that I thought it meant like plus size so I never really looked at it but I talked to the girl at the Everlane store in the seaport and she was telling me that it's really just for people that have like a really big waist to leg like difference in ratio and so it's basically just like every weight every leg has a little more room and every waist has a little less room um so you should check it out because I feel like it would be a solution to like the gaping problem they are a little more pricey they're like all around 80 dollars but for a good pair you should check it out yeah no for sure I will say I had a moment I don't know if anyone else does this but I had a moment where I was looking at my body in the mirror and I was like oh my god like she snatched I'm like oh okay hi hourglass like how are you doing so I definitely like I knew that obviously I've always known that I'm a curvier girl but like I didn't realize how like snatched I was in my waist and I was like okay miss feminine like what's up (laughs) (laughs) so I'm happy to have jeans that like also because your jeans shouldn't make you feel bad about your body like having a curvy body is the coolest thing in the world and having a not curvy body is also the coolest thing in the world so we should just have jeans that fit everyone. So 
can't recommend enough. I'll have to check out the Everlane ones though too, and I'll keep everyone updated on how it goes. Yes. All right, let's move into the main portion of today's episode. Let's interview Shagoon. All right, so moving in to the main portion of our episode, we are so, so, so excited to have Shagun on the show. As we said in the intro, she is a listener of the podcast, and she's also just the coolest woman, and we're going to talk about the coolest topics and really, really important topics to talk about. So hi, Shagun. How are you? Hi, guys. I'm so glad that you've uh, got me on. I love your podcast. I've been listening um, religiously for a year now. I think that's the only thing I do religiously in my life. Um, (laughs) And I think you guys are the coolest women too. So this is great. Awesome. We're so excited to have you guys. And um, what time is it where you are? You mentioned you haven't been up this early unless it was for a flight. It's it's 6.30 in the morning. Yeah, I don't wake up this early unless it's a flight. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for braving the early morning to be on the show. We're really lucky to have you. Um, And do you want to just give a little bit of background, Kylie? Yeah, so Shagun graduated with a master's in global affairs from Columbia University, which is so, so cool. And you completed a bachelor's degree, or she completed a bachelor's degree in political science and sociology from University of Delhi. She is extremely interested in understanding how corporations can become better social actors and respect human rights, as well as the role that gender plays in human experience. And she is an amazing listener of the show, like we said. So just the coolest person ever. This is going to be such a great episode. I'm super excited. <laughs> but that was a great introduction. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, I guess just jumping in, you know that we have to cover the classic two degrees hotter questions. So where did you grow up? And we know that you got your bachelor's degree um, from the University of Delhi. And how was that experience overall? So I've grown up in New Delhi, India, and um, I love that about like myself and my identity. I think India is a land of so much culture and so much diversity that growing up here has just, you know, made me who I am. Uh, We celebrate everything under the sun. So literally everything under the sun. We have all festivals uh, from Christmas to New Year to, you know, Diwali and Holi and Eid, which are all different religions and so it's 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 honestly been a really good learning experience outside of school also because you know you learn from different people who you're with and everyone around you is just you know from such different backgrounds and uh, yeah so that's where I'm from and that's kind of what has made me who I am Nice. Well, so we also want to ask you, because obviously you came from the University of New Delhi and growing up in New Delhi and then came to the States to go to school at Columbia University. So what made you want to move to the U.S. and to pursue your master's in New York City specifically? Mm-hmm. I think when international students apply, and I don't, I can't speak for every international student, but I think that when international students apply, we look not just for the degree and the course that we're going to pursue, but also the kind of experiences we get from the city and where we're going to be located because there's so much that we're going to learn outside um, of the classroom as well. Um, So for me, I mean, Colombia was always a dream just because of how liberal it is, just because of the kind of literature it's produced and the kind of professors it has, um, but also because it's in New York. And I feel like New York is a lot like New Delhi. It's very multicultural. It has that kind of um, you know, everyone from everywhere. Like, I love the fact that there's a Chinatown and a Koreatown and Italy and all of those, you know, fun stuff. And um, and so for me, New York was, you know, it was it was just the right fit because I've always been in a city with so many people, um, with so much diversity and so much happening constantly that it just felt like this is the right next step for me to do. Um, I chose to do my master's in the U.S. because I wanted to also kind of expand my reach from uh, kind of where I had grown up and what I had picked up to, you know, what I could do because I felt like there was just no, there shouldn't be any limit to the kind of reach that I want to have in my life with the kind of work that I want to do. And so New York was it for me. 
That's amazing. Um, And so good for you that you ventured so far from home. I don't know that I could do that for myself, but huge congratulations on that. And also congrats on getting into Columbia. That's obviously a huge deal. It's an Ivy League school. So we were curious if you could talk a little bit about the process of getting into Columbia, maybe for anyone that's listening and has Ivy aspirations of their own. (laughs) No, of course. I think one of the things that I will say is that dream it and you know believe that you can get it like that's the number one thing Uh, because no one can stop you but yourself and you know a lot of times our self-doubt is what uh, leads to self-rejection we just feel like we're not going to get in we're not good enough and and so on and so forth Uh, but if you decide that this is what I want and I'm good enough for it and they better take me in then you're going to make your plan and kind of work around it like that so for me like when I was in high school I decided that I want to stay in India for my undergrad because I was doing political science and I feel like doing political science or you know that something like that you need to do in your home country because you need a base for politics right like I couldn't have gone to the U.S. and done politics because that would have made no sense to kind of where I wanted to get in life Uh, but in India I learned about my country's politics and also obviously global politics becomes a part of our work but I knew from day one that I wanted to go to an Ivy League I was like I want to go for to an Ivy League for my master's it's going to happen and then I worked back and I was like what all do I need to get in what is the work experience that's required um, and stuff like that so the three years of my undergrad and undergrad in India is only three years so the three years of my undergrad were like you know I have to do this I have to get it and let's just go for it so I think the number one tip is just believe that you're going to get it because no one else can stop you that's advice I need (laughs) right now. It is. (laughs) Um, I think it's funny that you mentioned how it's really hard to get a political science understanding in a foreign country because I had that experience (laughs) my freshman year. I studied abroad at McGill, Mm. which isn't far, like it's Canada, Mm. so you wouldn't think it'd be that big of a deal. But I was so horribly lost in the like introduction Mm. to political science class. Mm. Um, And it makes sense, but it just made me feel so... I guess, like, naive to, like, other political structures and, like, the fact that, you know, Canada has, like, a parliamentary form of government. Like, it was just so over my head at the time. So I think you definitely made the right call because I was so (laughs) lost for, like, those four months. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you did start to talk a little bit about how New York reminded you a lot of New Delhi and sort of, like, the parallels between them. And so I'm curious, what have been some of your biggest observations when it comes to education or even just your experiences overall in the U.S. versus in India? So that's a very interesting question because, you know, it's a very different system of society, if you think of it. Like in India, the individual is all like your identity is derived from society. And so everything that you are, whether it's your education or who, you know, the kind of work that you do is related to the people around you. So you're always thinking of social. Um, But in the US, it's very individual centric, right? Like we always hear about like how it's about individual rights and individual liberties and so on and so forth. And that's very true. Like I always used to think that that's just something that people say. But when I when I went there, I realized how true it was, because even in, for example, education um, in India, you know, they would train us in a way that we would uh, be learning skills that we can apply in jobs or skills that, you know, we pick up or our rootedness. Like what is our heritage? What is like our base for Indian students? You would notice that even if you interact with Indian students in your universities that are based in subjects and, you know, theory and and practice is very very rich because that's what they kind of tell us that you need to have these skills to work in a society whereas when I was in the U.S. what I was noticing was that it was very centric to me so they were making sure that I was participating in class they were making sure that I was conversational that I was speaking that I was you know picking up whatever I needed to pick up and I had the tools that I required so in a way that difference was you know this difference between being um, individual centric was very visible when I was in the classroom there because all the tools were more centered to who I was and what I needed whereas in India it was more like this is what you need now go and get it like you need to kind of be that person and you need to fight for it and kind of uh, you know get it on your own um, so I think that is really the biggest difference that I noticed the other thing that I will say and I say this a lot is that in a lot of um, 
quote unquote first world countries uh the thing is and i don't know whether you guys would agree that people are very separated from uh issues of poverty like i remember when i was applying to columbia um i had one of my mentor read my essays and he said um i so i work for social development in india and i was like you know working with uh people who um you know who are underprivileged and he's like oh no people don't like the word underprivileged and poor in the us don't use that and i was like what do you mean by they don't like that word if <laughs> they exist like poor people exist and when i went to new york i actually realized that you know the separation is so physical it's not just mental so a lot of kids grow up not seeing people around them who don't have um you know three meals a day so like poverty is just it's not existent right and because if it's out of sight it's also out of mind so a lot of people like in classrooms when i would be like you know but we need to do this they would be like oh but don't people already have access to clean water and i was like no that's not a thing and so i think that separation is very very uh that also leads to how we approach education right because for an example in india like i could be living in the poshest communities but there would be a slum right outside my house but in new york there's like mm-hmm. you know they've separated harlem and put it you know up down so that it's away from like the upper east side so that no one else has to interact with uh these elements quote unquote so i think that's one of the other differences that i've noticed I'm like, can we get you in front of some of our politicians, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. And I think a lot of people have that realization about the US. It's just yeah. like everything is so siloed. And I don't know if it's like an urban sprawl thing. I don't know if it's like a, like you said, out of sight, out of mind thing. But I think it's interesting that you say that because I feel like my interpretation, like my very limited knowledge of India has always been like that the caste system is so real. And so I guess like maybe having that opposite end of the spectrum and like the hyper awareness of like different levels of society is like even, I don't know. I don't, do you like have anything to say about that? Like, is that an outdated like perspective? I'm just curious. No, it's not outdated at all. I think the caste system is very much prevalent in India and it's, it's, it's almost like the kind of way in which racism functions right in the US that it's it's very much there it's very much in people's faces the only difference is that you know even with black lives matter something that we all noticed was that it wasn't like these people weren't dying uh you know before george floyd it wasn't like you know black people were living their best lives it was just that it it took one incident to kind of shake the world and be like you know what we need to pay attention to this and that's the same way in india that these issues exist and we need our politicians to kind of hear us and be like okay we need to act on them um but the difference is these issues are more in our face so the caste mm-hmm. system you will see in your house you will see it like right outside your doorstep um rather than it being you know a, a, away from you so i think that in a way mm-hmm. molds you and that's also education right because it's not something that you're being taught but growing up you're just seeing it around you that that conditions the way you think Yeah. 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 I could totally see that because I do think that the US has an ignorance is bliss type of mentality when it comes to a lot of that stuff. And a lot of people live very sheltered lives. Um, And I think you make a really great point that 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 in and of itself is education. And a lot of people Mm -hmm. go into higher education or the workforce even like not knowing so much about their own society and how it works. Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting point to bring up. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. It's just an observation. Sure. Because being in India and being like society centric is also not great because it kind of rids you of any sort of individuality and takes away from independence, which is also very important. So it's not one better than the other. It's just two different, very different streams of working, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously Shagun is like such a social warrior and like so well versed on these issues. So I was really curious to ask like how did you end up discovering your passion for, you know, these topics and gender and corporate social responsibility? Like did you do something after your undergrad that like exposed you to all these things? I'm just curious like how did you land on this as your path? So it's a very interesting question because I when I started doing political science, I was very like you know i want to work for women i want to work for human rights like that was always it was always just something i wanted to do i was always like you know debate club president doing all of those things campaigning and 
you know, debating and having cases for these things. Uh, but like I said, because in my first year, I had decided I want to go abroad for my master's. I was trying to live my undergrad life in DU like a student would at Yale. And so I had one of my actually closest friends go to Yale for undergrad. And so I was like, I'm going to follow his exact path. And one of the things he did was do an internship abroad. And so I applied for an internship abroad and I was like, I'm going to get it and it's going to happen. So I actually went and worked um, in London for a very short period of time. And that was in corporate affairs. I didn't really care what I was doing. I was like in first year of university. I was like too young to care. And I realized then that I'm really good at the corporate world. And so that kind of you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person who has like to-do lists and, you know, everything organized. And I, I'm a goal, like a, I'm a person who wants to take decisions and get things done kind of person. Um, and so I was like, you know, it's very important to marry your passion to what you're good at. Like, I think people forget that second part. People just keep chasing their passion, but it's so important for young people to also know what their strengths are. And so I was like, if my strength is the corporate world, I'm not just going to ignore it. Like I have to acknowledge it and now think of how can I work for human rights in this space and corporate social responsibility was one of those ways. So I worked as a consultant for business and human rights, which is also like an upcoming field. It's uh, linked to the global compact, which is a UN body, but corporate social responsibility is the word they use in India for that kind of work. So it kind of just made sense for me to uh, do that. Yeah, it's funny actually that we're recording this episode today because I just had a conversation with a mentor of mine who brought up corporate social responsibility. And before really, you know, chatting with you and then having this conversation with him, I had never really heard that mm. term before or knew what it um what it entailed. He was like, You should really look into that. I feel like you would like that. So definitely interested to pick your brain a bit more on that. And I think, like you said, it's really important to like understand your passions and understand mm -hmm. your strengths because that's how you build a career. Yeah. Um, that's what I was going to say. I feel like I forget what episode it was, but at some point, yeah. I think during my week in review, I had found this concept through work that was like, um, it was like a three prong situation. And it was like, you have to find what you are passionate about, what you're good at and what will make you money. Mm -hmm. And that's like mm -hmm. the trifecta of like your career. Yeah. And so I think that's like super insightful. But to sort of wrap up just your background and your college experience, can you tell everyone what you are up to now? Of course. So I'm up to a lot of things. I like to keep myself busy. Um, so one <laughs> of the things I do is I work like my full-time job is as a consultant uh, for corporate social responsibility. And I work with a firm, which is a global firm called Grant Thornton. Um, so you guys might have heard of it because they have offices in the U.S. and Canada and other places. But I work for their uh, corporate social responsibility team in India. Um, apart from that, I am the director of global leadership at a nonprofit called One Shared World, which is based in the U.S. Um, and that's doing some really exciting work. And I work with young people from across the world to kind of advocate for um, equal rights to you know different things, whether it's water, sanitation, um, healthcare. Um, you know, human rights and stuff like that across the world. So that's one of the things I do. And I also uh, am a research fellow with Leading Cities with whom I published my research, which we'll jump into, I guess, in a bit. And finally, uh, very recently, I did another research on how young women of color are doing such interesting work and how we don't have women of color in top leadership positions. Forget women of color. We don't have women in top leadership positions. Like the US has never had a woman president which is just weird to me we've not had a un like a woman who's led the un uh general you know like been the general secretary of the un and so we did some research on that and through that we found that you know we need support systems for women and so i'm also the founder of nuna which is a platform uh, for women of color to find support um with other women of color so that's what i do I am just like so blown away and impressed <laughs> by all the amazing things you have going on. And I'm honestly like flattered that someone like you listens to the show because I'm like, just just, thinking that. you're so much more <laughs> impressive than we are, I feel like. And it's just so flattering. And I'm really glad that we get to be here with you and chat. It's like such a cool connection to have. No, I love it. I'm, I'm equally impressed. Just saying. <laughs> also we both think it's weird that the u.s hasn't had a female president as well That's oh not yeah a, that is weird yeah 
Yeah. So um, you touched on the research that you had been doing a little bit. And so I'm excited to kind of jump in and chat more about that. So can you tell us more about your research when it comes to women's safety across the world and kind of what you were looking into, what your main takeaways were? Mm -hmm. So I was actually doing a class at Columbia, which was, um, you know, women in cities and you know, women's rights in cities. And it was just a fun class that I wanted to do, which touched on architecture and human rights. And it was like, okay, this is a fun class to do. And I was working with one of my colleagues whose name is Juliana. She is uh, from uh, Colombia, the country. And so we were having a conversation about, you know, we had to do a capstone final project and we were thinking about, okay, what do we want to do it on? And, you know, whatever. And we were like, let's do it on women's safety in cities. And we were just trying to think about different things. And we were like, it's so weird that coming from different parts of the world. So she comes from Colombia, which is again, quote unquote, a third world country. Um, and I come from India again, quote unquote, a third world country. And um, yet even in New York city, which is supposed to be the most developed uh, you know, place in the world, we didn't feel safe walking back home when it was like 2am, right? We didn't feel safe just, you know, walking back home. And so we were thinking about how do perceptions of safety and perceptions of fear affect people's behaviors? Um, because the way it exists right now is that you think of safety or, you know, city planners and architects and police systems think of safety uh, bases where crime has already occurred. So they see that there's a murder or a th like in a robbery that happened somewhere and then they'll you know put like police vehicles or they put you know something over there but safety isn't uh you know it isn't a situation safety is a feeling right and if people are not feeling safe they're not accessing the city and we were like we are privileged people going to the most elite school in new york and yet we feel unsafe. So what about those women who don't have access to the things we have access to? Like calling an Uber sometimes, you know, when where it's two o'clock in the morning. A lot of people don't have access to that. And so how do perceptions of safety affect people's behavior um, in cities? And how does that differ for men and women? So we just started off with that. And we just thought this is the most obvious topic in the world. We were not impressed with ourselves at all. Um, <laughs> And then we started doing research and we shockingly uh, found that this had never been researched before in the world. No one had ever correlated perceptions of fear to how that affects behavior and then how that affects women's safety in cities. And so as an academic, it's great because I've done something that, you know, wasn't done before. As a woman, I want to kill everyone and myself because like we're in 2021. This should have been done like, you know, I don't know, in the 1900s. So that's kind mm -hmm. of what the research is. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you bring up the fact that like safety is a feeling and like the idea that like in such a, in a developed quote unquote place like New York City at such an elite school, like you should feel safe. It almost feels like that feeling of safety, especially for women is something that like transcends and is universal for all classes and people and societies because like obviously we talked a little bit about the distinguishing factors earlier in the episode so I think that's a really interesting point to bring up and I'm curious how that research process was for you especially because you guys were kind of trailblazers in leading this type of research in this specific area. So the research was really fun because we thought we're just going to read books and we're going to be done with it. And then we like realized there are no books and we were like, okay, now what do we do? Uh, because we committed to the topic. So we did an online research survey, which was completely anonymous, uh, reached 12 countries and more than 300 people um, across the world. So it was very, very global. Uh, we kept it open to all ages, all demographics, all races, colors, um, you know, genders we wanted it to be as diverse as possible um and it was a random sample so we didn't know and we couldn't you know if, you know kind of monitor who was answering the survey because we just sent it out to the world and just wanted the world to kind of get back to us so it was a very fun research process because it was like very like a learning experience for us because we were learning on the go and picking up using the tools that we just learned just to kind of reach out um to everywhere and everyone in the world and so we just realized by the end of it, though, that women don't have access to cities and wherever you are in the world, you could be in London and Paris and New York, or you could be in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and women just don't have access to cities. It doesn't matter where we are. 
And obviously that's like such a disappointing takeaway, I feel like, for us to live in 2021 and still feel like there's so much inequality when it comes to gender. And so I'm curious, obviously, like we can't solve all these problems right here during this podcast, but like from your perspective, why do you think, you know, progress has been so slow in this area? You know, thinking about all the progress we've made, like in other areas of, you know, technology and social issues, but like, why, why do you feel like this has trailed behind if, if you have an answer? I think the thing is, and this is what we as people don't question, is that these structures, whether they're cities, whether they're corporates, whether they're you know even university systems, were created by men for men, right? And we need to be cognizant of that because the minute we realize that this is created by a specific demographic for another specific demographic, which is not us, it's obviously not going to cater to our needs. So, you know, I don't remember which book it was, but I read that, you know, um, so there was a woman who was like working at a corporate, a big, big corporate. And um, she's like the head or the CEO of this company in Japan. And no one knew how to like address her because they were like, we've always just had a male CEO. And so they just called her Mr. for her entire tenure because they didn't know how to like a very simple thing. Like, you know, they couldn't they couldn't say miss. They just couldn't say it because they were like, this is weird. Like the structure should be for men. And so that's how I think of it. Like it's a very small example, but that's how I think of it for cities. Cities were made for men to go to work and women to stay at home and be close to grocery stores um, and, you know, run the house. And this is the kind of idea that kind of trickled down from the 1900s. Um, But the difference is women are not sitting at home anymore or, you know, just kind of doing all of those things. And so now that we're out and about in the cities, we need um, mechanisms that help us make help make us feel safe. So whether that is you know different elements of urban safety, whether that is public toilets, um, so many places don't have public toilets for women. Um, you know, basic sanitation and hygiene products, menstrual products, stuff like that. And so the short answer is the progress has been slow because it's been made for men by men. And if it was the other way around, we would be in a better place right now. Men are the root of all problems, I swear to God. <laughs> they really are. Because um, I think I think you make it, I couldn't say it better than myself. I think you make such an excellent point that all this time, I mean, you could say the same thing with the race and the fact that so many systems, especially in the US, were made by white people for white people and we're seeing the same issue there. Like, I think it's very parallel. Um, and obviously, this is such an important topic and We want to talk about, you know, what steps we can take to make cities safer for all of us and start that progress and keep it moving, you know, as fast as it possibly can. Um, And this is super relevant for Anya and I personally, because, you know, Anya just relocated to the city. I'm on my way. I'll be there by the end of the summer. And so we wonder if you could share some statistics about the gravity of this issue that you got from your research or just from, you know, really delving into this topic. Mm Um, again, the statistics are really, um, sad, but in a way, the way my, you know, co-author and I, Juliana, and I think of it is that it needed to be said. And that's the thing with a lot of things Mm -hmm. that, you know, some really tough things just need to be said. And we, as people just need to hear them and sip the coffee and move on. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. the thing with, you know, stuff like this, that we just don't say it. Um, so in our survey with, you know, almost 300 people, we found that 30% of women completely avoided cities or accessing cities because they felt unsafe. Um, so whether that meant that they would just not go out at night or whether that meant they would just not walk in cities, um, they just completely avoided it. Um, 70% of women feared sexual assault when they were in cities, Right. And the surprising or interesting statistic here is that no man who answered the survey feared sexual assault. Now, this is interesting because what that means is that when women are accessing cities, women are scared of other people attacking them, right? So when I'm walking down a street, I'm not scared that there's going to be whatever, a blizzard or an accident that's going to happen. I'm scared that there may be a man behind me who's following me, right? On the other hand, when men are walking in cities, they're not worried or concerned about anyone on the planet. What they're scared of is vehicles and accidents and things like that. And women are obviously scared of that too. And so it's interesting because then that also means that crime is gendered. 
And so if crime is gendered, we need to look at it from a gender-centric approach when we make laws and when we implement laws, right? Because um, this statistic clearly proves that the way in which women are fearing their safety and phys- physical kind of um, you know protection is because of a gendered nature of crime, which is sexual assault. Um, so those are just like statistics that completely blew our mind. Um, and obviously there are lots more, but I, I mean, I think this is, it's just, again, something important that needed to be said and, you know, thought about. Yeah. And I mean, how amazing it is that you two were the first ones to ever say it. I feel like that's so groundbreaking and important. But yeah, I think it's absolutely crazy what you said about the fact that not even one man voiced concerns about that, because I feel like as a woman, obviously, it's something that we're constantly thinking about. And, you know, voicing that to like some of my male colleagues, it's just, it feels so foreign to them. And it like really goes to show, I guess, like the dichotomy of like how people are raised and like taught to prepare for things. And it's just really sad and crazy. It's, you know, interesting because even like one of, so one of our publishers, he's a man, we were talking to him about the research and he was like, you know, I went back home and spoke to my wife about it. And he was like, I was completely shocked. And I was like, what happened? And he said, um, whenever you guys, and because you guys have like those big Walmarts and targets, which I'm completely jealous of, um, <laughs> but, uh, you have like parking lots right in front of it. And so he was talking about how his wife, whenever she's parking her car, thinks about, is there a light above the car? Is it close to the gate? Is there like, you know, a guard next to the gate? Like what's the situation? And he's like, I don't give a shit about any of that. Like I just park closest to <laughs> the store so I can just, you know, I don't have to walk a lot. And it's that, you know, intrinsic to us as women that we're not, we, we don't get, I could walk like seven kilometers if it's safe, you know, but for a man, it's just like, this is not even a concern. I was like, that's so interesting. Yeah. Totally. I remember I was watching a video not too long ago and like someone was like, she was, this woman was asked a question and it was something along the lines of like, what would you do if you were a man for a day? She was like, oh, I'd go for a walk at night with headphones in. And it's just so like yeah. the men in the video were like, what do you mean? Like, just do that anyway. She's like, yeah, no, <laughs> I don't feel like getting jumped on the street. Thank you very much. And it's just like, it's crazy. It's crazy to think that in your research, not a single man had that type of worry mm-hmm. on their mind. That's like blowing my mind. I need time to digest it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so obviously, you know, that's like a very disheartening thing to hear, but hopefully there are things that we can all do to help make cities safer and, you know, move in the right direction. So from your perspective, what can the average person do to help combat these issues and these, you know, inequalities that we face? Mm -hmm. So on the promising side, one thing that our research found is that both men and women value elements of urban design in similar ways. So for example, whether it's streetlights, whether it's active storefronts, stuff like that, both men and women want that. So that's good because what that means is that when you design safer cities for women, you design safer cities for all because it's not just women who want those streetlights, right? Everyone wants those streetlights. So in terms of what we can do, I think there are two things. One is speak up. Say the things that you think are obvious, right? So if there is a class that, you know, a professor is like, you know, running over time and it's like eight o'clock at night. Just say that you're a woman and you don't think it's safe to go home. Bring it up in conversations where it becomes awkward because I've realized that awkward conversations are the only thing that are, you know, kind of going to bring change. Because when you put someone in an awkward position, when you question a sexist joke, that's when that person is going to be like, oops, I shouldn't have said that. So I would say number one is speak up. And number two, on your personal individual level, show up for the people around you, right? Don't assume that, you know, everyone feels safe or everyone has the same privileges because safety, what I've come to realize is a privilege. Not all of us have it, right? With the pandemic, especially like, you know, we all keep saying and we hear everywhere around us that, you know, you should be very fortunate that you're home. Uh, But home is not a safe space for everyone, especially for women. There are so many statistics that right now coming out that, you know, there's so much domestic abuse that has increased because of the lockdowns and stuff like that. So I would just say that, be there and just don't assume that people are in the right place just because they don't seem to be in the wrong place. Um, So show up for your friends, be kind. Yeah, I really like that advice. And I like that you point out the fact that 
making cities safer and just the world safer for women does not inherently mean that it's not safe for men or worse for men Mm. in any sort of way. Like there really is a lot of common ground there that we can work on. It's just a matter of getting there and making that progress. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of start to hint at the next topic that we want to talk to you about, what are some changes that you hope to see at a more systemic level in cities to help women feel safer? Mm -hmm. I think so. One of, uh, you know, the interesting exercises that we did when we were developing this research is that think of it like this. And this is what I want our policy thinkers and, you know, lawmakers and, you know, government officials and corporates to think about. Um, try to think of a map and we, we we tried to do it for New York and we failed at it because it was so big, but we did it around the flow block, uh, flow four block radius of Colombia. Um, think of a map of a city for a man and then think of the same map of the city for a woman and block out the areas that a woman would not go to because she thinks it's unsafe. So for example, there's so many back alleys that I would not go to around Colombia because they just didn't have streetlights and just black it out. And then compare the two maps and you would see that the man has a lot more space to access as compared to the woman, because psychologically, she's just not using those other spaces. Right. And so I think that when we do that, the policy implications would mean that we need stronger policies. Uh, We need, um, you know, women to be on the board of taking these decisions, because like I said, So far, cities have only been designed by men for men. And so we need women to be a part of that design process. We need corporates and individuals and students and universities and every every sector to come together and think of this as a problem. Uh, We did a webinar where we had the CEO of a very, very major telecom provider in the U.S. join. And she was like, this is so interesting because the way we usually provide telecom is we think of a heat map. So wherever there are more people, we give more cell coverage. So if people are going to a mall, we have more cell coverage there. I noticed that in the U.S. Like there would be places where I would just like drop off, like there would be no no cell coverage at all um and i was like yes but that's the problem women need their phones when they're in those back alleys not when they're there in the mall because the malls are safer inherently (laughs) and so we need all our players to kind of recognize this and so we need stakeholders to be held accountable and whoever you are wherever you are you need to realize that you can play a part in making someone else feel safe whether it's individually or through policy I love that. Um, And obviously, we're huge advocates here for women in leadership and, you know, women just occupying space and making themselves known. So I know that I'm, you know, a little bit preaching to the choir on this, but just to play (laughs) devil's advocate for a second, I'm curious, like, why do you think and how would you articulate why having women in positions of power is so important? Like, do you feel like it's kind of a representation thing, looking and seeing people that look like you in positions of power. Is it like a trickle down effect? Like, how would you articulate the importance of that? Um, the way I see it is that it should be the norm. It is important because it is what it should be. That's what should be our normal, mm-hmm. right? Like whenever people ask me that, why do you think, you know, you as a woman should be in this position of power? Or why do you think women should be on more boards? I'm like, because don't you see the problem? Like, it's obvious. Like, you know, we, it, 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 why aren't all genders just represented equally? Like, it just makes no sense to me. But also because there's a, there's a need for that voice. I think that, you know, even one woman being there and talking and, you know, representing, um, I'm not saying one woman or any woman can represent all women at all, because I think we're all different and we come from different backgrounds. However, having that voice represent the concerns of a community is very, very important because that voice more often than not does not exist in in those board meetings, in those decision making uh, rooms. Um, You know, like when Apple came out with their phone, if you remember with facial recognition technology, there was this huge um, debate about how it could not recognize black people. And the solution to that was why the hell wasn't there a black engineer, you know, on the team designing that phone? Because you need people from all races and genders to be a part of those, you know, those decision making things. When like phones right now, the way we think of it, they're designed for the, you know, for men because they're so big with, you know, and our biology, our hands are smaller. And that's why, like, you know, there's so much literature on how, you know, technology is also designed for men by men. Um, And so that's the thing. We just need the woman to be there in the same room and, you know, be a part of that decision making process so that the voice is heard. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point in that, like, 
decisions that affect all should be made by people that at least attempt to represent all. And like you said, I mean, nothing's perfect. It's hard to represent the masses through smaller boards and things like that. But for the love of God, it should be easy to have a representation of all genders and all races there at the very least. Um, So I think that's a really great point to bring up. And that is the last question that we had for you. We talked about some just incredible and super, super important stuff in this episode. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it, but we're curious what the biggest thing you want our listeners to take away from this episode is. And we know that's a hard question because there's just so much that they should take away from this episode. (laughs) I think there are two things. One is that don't assume that people are in an okay place or people are safe or people are fine. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Just don't assume that. I think we operate with the assumption that everyone's doing fine. And, you know, we just think of our problems. Um, If we do, if we start being and living a little more consciously and we stop to think about what, you know, someone else might be going through, we'd just be a much more kinder species and be nicer to everyone around us and also make sure that everyone's feeling safe and represented and, you know, has that voice on these global platforms. I think the second thing that I would say is that um, kind of, you know, collecting and this kind of camaraderie between women is so important. Um, I think female friendships and female support groups are really what get me through my life and through a lot of women. For for a lot of women, that's very, very important. I think that you need support systems that are going to push you up and So look at the women in your life and kind of see them as examples, Um, be there for each other. That's kind of why I started Nuna, because that's what we want to do that, you know, women don't have support systems. And, you know, we need to have that kind of structure where women can just talk about uh, problems, including like, you know, I'm I'm getting terrible cramps. I don't want to work. What do I do about that? Um, From that to like, I'm facing systemic racism in my university. How do I kind of tackle it? So have that support system. That's very, very important. Um, and be there for each other. I think that is like such a beautiful sentiment. And I'm personally glad that, you know, we have you as a woman to add to our networks. Mm-hmm. Like, I just think it's so amazing to like see all the communities that we can form. And so um, where can our listeners find you online, your research, Nuna, all of those things if they want to keep up um, offline? Mm-hmm. So the research that we have is on the Leading Cities website. So if you just go on Leading Cities, um, the website, you'll find it under their media section. It's called Walk With Women. We love the title because it's like just, you know, walk with them and see what's happening with them. Um, and so that's where you can find my research in terms of Nuna. We're just Nuna.live on Instagram. Um, and you can find my personal Instagram also on there. Um, it's Shagun Sethi. And so you can, you can, you know, find that there. I will just throw this in because I feel like you guys are going to like this. But when we did this research <laughs> and we did this report, uh, we were invited to write for a journal in the US and just send an editorial. And we called it Sexism in the City. Because it was like sex in the city, but like so sex good. in the city. Nice. So, um, yeah, more than the article, we were just proud of the name. We were like, this is great. That's so good. <laughs> no, that's perfect. I'm a Sex in the City fan myself. I don't know if Anya, you watch it, but I'm a huge Sex in the City fan. So I, I love a nice Sex in the City one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now we are going to move in. As you know, we do a game of this or that with all of our guests. So we are going to move into the this or that. So. For anyone who's new here, we play a game of this or that with all of our guests. Shagoon has not seen these questions. Is that what they're called? Options? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she'll be giving off-the-cuff, candid answers to all of them. Awesome. Well, I can kick it off with the first one. Yes. So would you rather, I guess, handwrite your class notes or type your class notes? Oh, my God. Handwrite. All the way. I had a feeling, <laughs> I had a feeling you would say that. I feel like there's just different types of people and you can kind of tell, but I feel like you also have good handwriting. Is that a correct assumption? It doesn't even matter. Like I can't imagine like typing when someone's talking to me. Like I just can't, I need to write it up. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's studies that show that like you retain yeah. information better when you handwrite it. So I don't know if someone just told that to me to make me hand, like a teacher told that to me. So no, it's true. I know it's to type them. Yeah, I take it to heart. So I, I'm also a handwriter myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not. It's fine, guys. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> I'm a typer. I'm just so much faster with typing. But I know that there That's is fair. some truth to it. But yeah. 
Um, the next one is a movie slash self-care night or a night out. I think uh, the pandemic has made me more of a movie slash self-care person and like kind of prioritize like what I need for the night rather than just go out. Uh, but I like to go out too. So <laughs> I think the answer for now yeah, is movie fair. slash self-care. I guess I'm, this isn't one of the questions, but you your answer to that made me curious. And I can't really tell. Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Extrovert, for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love talking cool. to people. Yeah. Well, you're very well-spoken. I just couldn't really tell because yeah. I feel like you're also very, like, I don't know, calm and, like, I don't know. So that's, that's cool. <laughs> um, the next one is study alone or study in a group? In a group. It's always worked for me. It's always more fun. And um, I enjoy doing that. Yeah, I wish I could relate. I was always an alone type of girl. Yeah. Um, the next one is read the book or watch the movie? Read the book, then watch the movie. So you can judge it. Uh, <laughs> excellent answer. The only answer. Yeah, <laughs> that is the answer. Um, and the last one, really hard hitting, coffee or tea? <laughs> Oh my god, that's, I knew you were going to ask me that. I just knew it in the back of my head that you were going to ask me that. Um, it's such a classic one. Um, oh my god, that's so hard. I'm, so I'm a very like, I need to like keep sipping on things when I'm working. So like I'm having like, mm -hmm. and I can't obviously keep sipping on coffee because I'll die. Like my therapist will lose her <laughs> shit. Um, so I need my coffee when I wake up in the morning. Uh, but then I also enjoy my tea. If that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you have like a favorite? I'm I'm really big into tea mm -hmm. lately. So do you have like a favorite type? Are you like into herbal teas or like green tea, black tea? What's your tea of choice? Girl, I come from the land of tea, so we have tea everywhere around us, and that's I think the reason why also I'm into tea. Like we have all kinds of herbal teas. Like we have chamomile and jasmine and all these flowers mm -hmm. and everything around us, and then also like. I'm recently like getting into matcha, so I'm doing that. Yes. Um, and it's yes. so so. Tea is just like yeah. Tea is just like water at some at, after a point because yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so jealous. You must have access to like all the freshest, most yeah. amazing teas. <laughs> yeah. And do you do you find it funny how like we have chai tea, which is just like tea tea. <laughs> It's so funny because there are so many things that in the U.S. they just call like they call it non bread which is just bread, bread. Right. Right. <laughs> like, it's hilarious True. to me. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I like myself a chai latte. Like, I know a lot of people from India yeah. would judge me for it, but I love myself a chai latte. <laughs> I like a chai latte too. I support it. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Well, that is everything we have for this episode. So I just want to say thank you so, so much for coming on the show and for spreading your wisdom today. I feel like this episode is definitely going to make a difference to people. And I'm so glad you reached out because we never would have known that this amazing research was out there. Mm -hmm. um, and we will have everything linked down below so that you can keep up with our amazing guests today. Thank you so much, you guys. This was great. And I love your podcast. Can I just say, like, I listen to it. Like, I go back to it. And I'm just like, I feel like you guys are like my friends. And I just love it. I absolutely adore it. Well, we definitely are Thank your you. friends now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we want to be your friend. Um. But yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Like Anya said, we will have all of your information, all of your research in the show notes. So definitely check it out. And we'll have our Instagram in the show notes as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, other than that, I think we'll chat with you guys next Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Bye.